Welcome back to Lox Talks, episode four. Today we will have Detective Greg Tomlinson, aka GT, on. He works for the Seattle Police Department in the Gang Task Force Unit. And I am very excited for this podcast. So far, it's been my favorite one we have. We discuss, I mean, things such as defunding the police, you know, the riots, the protests, everything that he's experienced in his near 30 years of being on the police force. So I really think that you guys are going to really enjoy this. I thank you for all the support you guys have given me lately. Um, so sit back and enjoy. Thank you so much. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And I live like 20 minutes from here. So it's like we go here. Like as Yeah, as you're can. close. Yeah. We love downtown. It's nice, man. It's really fun. Between, yeah. Yeah. It's getting a little dangerous at night sometimes <laughs> with the homeless people. And we so. just had. We saw a lot. Let's see, we had a sh- tonight we've already had a shooting, a stabbing. Not downtown. Mom was West Seattle. I think the stabbing was up East Precinct. Yeah. So do you work in a specific precinct? So you know about like shootings West, East, yeah. whatever. Like, do you, there's a specific, because you said you're four blocks away, right? Yeah, we're just down at uh, headquarters buildings at Fifth and Cherry, five blocks away maybe. But it's, yeah, but we go citywide for all the shooting, stabbings, all that kind of stuff. So everywhere. Yeah. So, like, when, so specifically, what is it? Because you're not, like, you're, 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 you know, you're a police officer, but are you specifically, like, you hear about a shooting, you go there to investigate, you're, you know, like, I don't, I don't specifically know. Right. What it is? We're the, we're the you know we're we used to be called the gang unit. Now we're called the gun violence reduction unit. So now we are, um, you know, still focused on the same types of crimes. Though we do a lot of the shootings, mostly shootings, um, a gun possession crime as well. If we see any of that going on, um, but yeah, we respond citywide. We hit a sh- hear a shooting come out over the air. Usually a couple of us will go up there to the to the scene. A couple of us will probably wait to see if a guy shows up at Harborview. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times you have uncooperative yeah. victims. Uh, we've had a lot of shootings lately involving homeless, which we don't do. Uh, Why used, not? Uh, that's because we're more focused on uh, gang members. So or, it is about organized. so basically any like shooting that you would assume would be involved with gangs. Yes, that's like your main ones. But you do go to almost every shooting. We go to a lot. Of, yeah, if if it comes out possibly gang related, then we'll go. Mm-hmm. See if it is, if it is. And sometimes we'll still take it. You know, it might be a youth crime. might be 17-year-olds yeah. we don't know are gang-affiliated, you know, affiliated, but yeah. could be, might be coming up. A lot, of, a lot of the homeless ones will go, you know, we just don't do those because it's, uh, they're probably our biggest problem right now when it comes to violent crime. Really? Is, the yeah, is the homeless. We were having, there's a lot of guns, a lot of shots fired in the... Between them? Yeah, between them usually. Really? Um, sometimes it crossed over to gangster stuff yeah. when there's a lot of drugs obviously in the homeless camps and tents mm-hmm. and the RVs and all that and sometimes gang members will try to move in on you know drug territory yeah. and have incidents but Definitely. in general it's a lot of just homeless on homeless whether it's a robbery uh, you know a, a home invasion of their tent or their yeah. uh, RV or um, a fight whatever it's it, but we've had quite an uptick in their in shootings involving homeless people yeah Dang. So that's what, so essentially, it's like no matter what shooting, you get called there. And is, if it's, you know, anything that's not necessarily, like how would you know, like what, what typically you go to a shooting, um, what do you know, like how do you tell the difference between like a normal shooting, maybe like, you know, someone got in a fight or something like that, or like a gang-related shooting? A lot of times we know what part of town it's in. That's, a, that's always a sign. Also, the people involved, you know, the cars involved, we know... The names of the of the people we deal with have for years. You've been uh, watching them. We've been we pro- we just run into them all the time because mm-hmm. whether it was their dads we dealt with in the '90s when I was a younger officer and detective, mm-hmm. or, or their kids who are now turning 18, 19, 20. Um, they're just their families. We know they're people we know that right. we've we've <laughs> sometimes developed relationships with over the years. As yeah. far as just because. A lot of street contacts. Now we're contacting kids. And then we go, we know a lot of, we do the basic stuff. You know, we're going to go interview if the witness is still there, the victims are still there, but interview the victim. Who shot you? Where did this happen at? What was going on? Uh, Same thing with witnesses that might be around. You know, what did you see? You know, how did this happen? Who was what? We have a lot more video now, which is helpful too, right? A lot of video. Obviously, we have, we deal with, in our line of work, we ought to, a lot of times have uncooperative victims, uncooperative suspects, 
And no witnesses, um, because there is just a culture of don't cooperate the police don't and a snitch. lot of stuff we do. Yeah. Don't snitch. That's, yeah, that's what I assumed. Yeah, so, yeah. But video helps us a lot now because it will tell the kind of the unbiased story of what happened, right? So we'll see the video of the shooting if we were lucky enough to get that. And then we can tell who was the aggressor, you know, you know, we'll get a lot of, I didn't know who it was. Well, you, you're talking to him five minutes before the shooting. Yeah. So what do you mean you don't know who it was? Um, you know, your car parked in the parking lot and this guy ran up on you. Like, how do you know you were just going to park there and shoot at you? It's, you know, stuff like that. So yeah. through the video, and then every now and then we'll get cooperation from somebody because uh, the parents know more than we do or maybe a girlfriend or, you know, someone who's, you know, has some motivation to help the police or wants to help the police will come forward and we'll get, uh, you know, a suspect name. And then from there, we work it up into things like photo montages to show the victim Mm -hmm. um, or witnesses. Um, You know, a lot of times we'll get cell phone records, that kind of stuff to show who was he calling right before the shooting, who was he texting, who was he Snapchatting, all that kind of stuff. So, um, And does that work out a lot for you to find out, like, who, I mean, the questions they don't want to answer? It does. It does. The phone will tell us um, it's getting a little more difficult with social media, but we're... That's one of our things we do in the gang is we look at a lot of social media. Uh, a lot of it's open source, just what's out in the public. But if we do get someone's phone and we can, you know, uh, use that as a resource, we'll, yeah. we'll use that as a resource too to help us with location sometimes. It's location. Sometimes it's who their contacts are. Sometimes it's what they exactly they were saying to the person, whether it's a text or some kind of instant message. Um, and all that's useful for, you know, down the road to prove yeah. who did the shooting, and what, what those I would assume so. gang related or not? Yeah. yeah. So you said like a few minutes ago, you, you know some of the people just because you've been working since like the nineties. Is that yes. how long you've been in SPD? Yes, I started uh, nineteen ninety three, and I worked at patrol downtown for a year. Then I went to the South Precinct, kind of the Rainier Valley area, for about four four and a half years, and um, that's where a lot of the gang activity was going on at the time. So I learned a lot about it there in patrol and talking to the older gang detectives. And then uh, I was appointed to be a gang detective in April of 1999. So it's been uh, 21 years now. Wow. And I spent about five and a half years in the gang unit. Then I went to an ATF task force where we did a lot of undercover stuff. So what's the difference between those two? Uh, ATF, I was what we call a task force officer. So I'm basically deputized as a U.S. Marshal uh, under the sponsorship of the ATF. And that gives me federal arrest powers. So I basically left the gang unit um, in 2005, and I worked with them for about nine or ten years doing that kind of thing, mostly, again, uh, using informants, doing undercover stuff, doing search warrants and all that, mm-hmm. and doing trying to do cases. They liked bigger cases, right? They wanted you to arrest nine, ten people at a time or whatever it was. You know, They wanted multiple yep. defendant arrests if possible. Um, but it was fun. It was fun work. Sometimes we'd focus just on an area of town where there was big problems. Like we did a big case in White Center in 2011 where we got a bunch of guns and, you know, 30, 40 arrests. Uh, that was over a 90-day period. We did... Uh, oh, so know, 90 days, like you stake out, watch... Yep, 90 know, days. We were in that area of town. We just focused right there in like a 10-block area and of town. And how, how do you not get noticed? I mean, isn't it obvious when you're... I mean, just around the same area, two guys, we just, multiple guys. You just be, you just be careful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of times they don't notice you right away. You know, ninety days isn't a huge amount of time. We had to wrap stuff up. We had to, uh, you know, we use a lot of again informants, some undercovers introduced in there. They would, we'd switch out cars, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, but a lot of times these guys don't notice. They're just busy doing their work. Whether it's selling drugs, guns, and that whatever was they're doing. that was you guys were looking for what gun trade? What, what was uh, we were looking for. There was a couple of bars at that time down there in White Center that were really bad that were selling dr- a lot of drugs. They're also involved in violent crime. There's street robberies going on, shootings going on, homicides that were going on there. So our goal was to infiltrate the bars, find out who was the leaders of the drug trade, maybe who was inside the bar doing bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, just who was hanging out there on a daily basis, and then, uh, yeah, use informants, undercovers to make buys of narcotics, guns, that kind of thing from from them, and then make some arrests. And, and you know, the the area did clean up for a little bit. It, White Center is always going to be a tough part of town, and um, I, it's getting better. Uh, they're getting more restaurants, and 
it's cleaned up a little bit, but uh, yeah, it's, it's still a rough area. And so then, uh, what was what? So you went from like a patrol officer to gang unit to ATF. ATF. Yes. Then that was what 2005. You said. Yeah. So then, from then till now, what? Have and you then been? in 05 to like 2014, we were doing that. And then in 2014, the ATF started kind of a. They ramped up a program, I should say. It's already been around. It's called NIBIN. It's the National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. Pretty complicated yeah. name. Yeah. Cool name, NIBIN. huh? <laughs> NIBIN, yeah. So they, uh, we use forensic evidence from shootings to connect different shootings together. Mm-hmm. So for, if we have a, uh, what we call a NIBIN hit, where uh, shell casings, when a primer or the firing pin hits a shell casing, it leaves a distinct mark. Each gun does. So if we start seeing shell casings from the same guy at different scenes, then we start trying to put together a case on, okay, what do we have of these scenes that's in common other than the bolt, you know, yeah. other than the casings? Do we have the same car? Do we have, oh, the victims are all this gang, so probably this gang's doing it. Mm-hmm. Do we have people posting social media, that kind of stuff, holding guns that match these kind of guns? Maybe some guy's holding a Glock, and this is a Glock gun, you know? Mm-hmm. So based on... The Nibin hits give us the leads that we need to go arrest the people involved in the shootings. A lot of times we can't prove they did the shootings, um, but we do catch them with firearms quite a bit, so they get yeah, charged with a gun. Something, yeah. Yeah, they get charged with something. And that's been very successful. It's been very helpful. The ATF runs the program, uh, SPD. Uh, obviously, we do a lot of cases uh, with our shootings, but we work with Kent, every agency in King County, basically, we work with. And so when I basically left kind of went back to the gang unit, even though I was with the ATF still, in 2015, and we started using the knife and stuff to connect cases. Um, there was an incident where a, a knife was very useful in connection to a homicide of an of a infant. Uh, there's been several times it's been useful in homicides with King County, Seattle, because we'll get it, we'll get the shooting in our jurisdiction matches one in counties. Kind of get one that matches with ours, and we'll kind of be like, okay, who's you the... guys all put the pieces together? Yeah, and we work great together. And that's the thing. King County is their major crimes unit. Uh, they all used to be a lot of more gang detectives. I worked with them White Center like ten years mm-hmm. ago, and now we're working, you know, their homicide cases and our shooting cases. Uh, same thing with Kent. It gets a lot of shootings down there. A lot of gangsters that used to live in Seattle moved down to Kent because of gentrification here, and it was you know cheaper to live down there. So we have a lot of crossover in our people. Uh, same thing with Federal Way, um, Des Moines, and uh, Auburn. Yeah. Auburn, and Renton too. All, just pretty much everybody in that kind of South King County area up to yeah, Seattle. Lower we work areas. With. Yeah, and. Um, the Nibin just helps give us, it also gives us something to talk about, right? So we know that the Auburn shooting is connected to my Seattle shooting. So Auburn might have more info on their shooting. I might have nothing on mine. Auburn has, oh, we had a red car, partial plate. And then off that, we're going to get some info and probably try to connect. Um, yeah, and try to make a lead off that. So are you, so you don't like go out. So when you say, you know, gang unit and stuff like that, are you, after you, you know, make sure you know, this is the person we're getting or these are the guys we're infiltrating, do you go out and be a part of the arresting? Like, do you go out and... Yes. You, you arrest people? Yeah, we go out and arrest people. Um, the last, probably since 2012 or 13, we're not on the street as much as we used to be. We used to be kind of about half uniform and half detective follow-up work. Mm-hmm. Since 2012, with the Department of Justice going on and some uh, changes to Washington state law regarding searches of vehicles and people and that kind of stuff... Uh, that's not our most productive use of our time. Um, our, our more productive use of the time is to do the investigative work, develop suspect information, and then go out and arrest that person. Mm-hmm. So, yes, and it takes some manpower to arrest uh, even one person right now. So it has to be, it's no longer the old days where we make a traffic stop and arrest the guy for the shooting and find the gun in the car. It's more, uh, you know, find out where he works, where he lives, where his mom mm-hmm. and dad are, where his girlfriend is, and then, based on that information, try to track him down uh, there and uh, affect the arrests. Is it normally one singular person? Do you guys do, like, a lot of... I mean, obviously, it's for gangs. You're not going to arrest everybody in the gang. You know, you're probably right. tracking down one, two, a few people. We'll get probable cause for one guy, but a lot of times they roll together mm-hmm. with two, three, four guys, so... Maybe have enough to arrest one guy, but when we go to in to make the arrest, three guys run out of the car. 
Mm-hmm. So we have enough to search the car based on the one guy having a gun, and then we find other guns in the car yeah. that can we can put with who's ever, you know back seat, front seat, wherever that's at. So yeah, a lot of times we're looking for one guy, but we end up getting one or two more because they're just there. They're rolling deep, and yeah. I, one as one gangster put it to me like ten years ago, if you saw four guys on a corner hanging out, there'd be one gun. He goes, nowadays you see four guys on a corner, there's gonna be four guns. Mm. So we're just seeing a lot more it's guns. We're seeing a lot more amount of rounds fired. I mean, it just, I don't think I'm remembering it wrong. In the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was pretty rare to get a case where they're busting off 30, 40 rounds at a scene. And now it's, that's pretty commonplace, you know, to get you know, 25, 35, even we've had 80, 90 rounds. So uh, that seems to be because they have a little more, they're into high capacity magazines now. You can put a 30-round magazine in a gun, you're going to get a lot more shots off. So mm-hmm. that's what we're, we're and, noticing. And typically for gangs, like, I mean, obviously I'm not really familiar with, like, gangs. Is it, like, what, what like, is it simplified, like, Bloods, Crips, that stuff? Or is it more, like, local-only kind of gangs? There's a lot, yeah, there's a lot to the localness. I think 25 years ago, 30 years ago, it was more Bloods up from L.A. and Crips locally developed and some BGDs from Chicago, Black Gangster Disciples, and some local BGD gangs that formed as well. And it was all about, yes, like wearing rags and stuff. And mm-hmm. then, you know, by the early 2000s, mid-2000s, they weren't into that, right? It was too much of an identifier, right? Like, why would I wear a rag stand on the corner? That's just going to draw police attention, <laughs> yeah. right? Or, you know, if, act less gangster on the street and, you know, that kind of stuff. So... We're seeing now, I would say, yes, a lot more younger local gangs that are based on your neighborhood, maybe your apartment building. I mean, which has been typical for gangs since the 80s is like, right, Elm Street was Elm Street and, you know, from L.A. And, you know, a lot of Chicago games are named after streets in Chicago. So I guess it hasn't changed that much, but it just seems like they're not... They're not affiliated with bigger gangs. That's I guess that's the difference. Is they're more, they're localized. A lot of East African gangs now, right? From Ethiopia, uh, really? Eritrea, yep, Somalia. So we're seeing a lot more East African gangs in like a place like the Holly Park, the Hollies, Holly Park gang. Uh, there's also uh, one up in uh, Yesler Terrace. Uh, there's so there's several of those that feud sometimes uh, with each other, sometimes with other gangs in the area. Um, there's a lot to deal with, it sounds like. It is. It's a lot. And the guys do a great job there. We have a good unit. We have, a good, we have good leadership there uh, that really lets us do our jobs and doesn't impede us too much. Um, and I think uh, a lot, we got a lot of smart guys there that know how to make a case. A lot of veteran uh, detectives who have been there a while, too. So yeah. you put all that together, and even though our shots fired since, you know, really since the summer have, like, doubled we're getting shots fired per why, month now. Why, why do you think that is? Since I mean, does it have to do with the whole movements going on and everything like that? It does, yeah, because cops aren't as proactive as they are, as they were used to be. I think to gain it, we had to dial back some stuff we were doing as well. Um, to focus more on everything else? To focus on the riots, exactly, and the protests. And I think there's also just some... Um, career survival that we needed to evaluate and look at and see what we were getting our bang for our buck on the stuff. Um, and so because there was a, I'll call it a reevaluation of how we were going to do things and what we were going to mm-hmm. do and when we were going to do them, I think there was some, uh, just some guys got unchecked. And I think a lot of cops, I'm not going to say are afraid for their job, but they're just more cautious about how they do it, which is, I think maybe what the community wants. You is, mean like in the way they... Like, like actually go out and like patrol and this and that? Or do you mean, like, what do you mean by that? Yes, by the way, they go out and patrol. I think they're more uh, conscious of the political environment that they're in yeah. and how they need to act to that and react to that. And I wouldn't call it de-policing. I would just call it they're reevaluating what they do, how they do it. And I think we're all kind of in that pause mode right now and, you know, how we're going to move forward from here. And so that has led to, you know, unfortunately, a little bit of slowdown in proactivity mm-hmm. just because everyone's trying to figure this out right now. And, and I think that's part of the reason why 
we've had more shots fired, but also because we also have like our act teams, our bike teams are every night they're out with the protesters. They are going to get tired. They're going to get, they don't have time to go out and do their usual work they do in the precinct because they're falling around 150, 200 people every night. So you take those that are proactive units like bikes and act out of their anti-crime teams, out of their regular jobs. You have the gang unit patrol kind of reevaluating what they do, how they do it, and how we're going to move forward from here. And that's leading to a little bit of, um, of a little more freedom for the some of the our people that are shooters to do what they want to yeah, do. Yeah, I would yeah. assume so. Yeah. And are there protests like every single night down here? Like every night? They call it the everyday march or the... Yeah, EDM, I think it's called. So, yeah, I, I would say every night there is. Some get violent, some don't. You know, there was a couple nights after... Um, like with the police violent or like with each other? What? With each other. That By violent, I mean they go out, they're breaking windows, they're graffitiing things, yeah. they're throwing firebombs, they're burning stuff. Uh, I just remember in May when that first happened, or like, I don't know, late May, early June, um, there was like the first major protest and more like two cop cars got burned. Yes. And the guy came in. One of the, someone like grabbed an AR out of one of the cop cars, I think. Like, I, I was just like watching that on TV. And that's before everything happened because, like, you know, I was like, I think it was like the first major one. Yes. Um, but yeah, since then, I guess it's not. We had crazy. George Floyd was, I think, the 25th of May. And then our first protest we had was the night of the 29th in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And then the 30th, 31st, that weekend is when, yeah, downtown got looted and burned and everything was, you know, boarded up after that. Yeah. And then um, we had the cop cars burn. We had the uh, the rifles were stolen, guns, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was crazy. I think we just, you know, it's one of those things we, we didn't realize how much it was going to spread or how fast it was going to spread. Uh, and so we weren't prepared maybe the first couple of days, but by Monday... But it was that June 1st-ish, we were probably, then we were in ready to go. Mm-hmm. And that's when we had these precinct, and then we, you know. So that was June 1st when Chaz started? June 1st was when we really had enough guys there to actually do stuff, and then we fought for these precinct from June 1st through June 7th through the morning of there. The, I was there the night, the morning of the June 8th till about 2, 3 a.m. we were there. What do you mean you, like, fought? We were defending these precinct, basically. They wanted these precinct. That was their goal. We said we weren't going to give it to them, and we were there. Did they announce that? I mean, I, I don't really know how Chaz even happened. Like, they had a bunch of people just show up and, like, block the roads, set up tents, say, like, we want this. Or did they say, like, we're going to do this soon, and we're gonna, you're going to give it up? We had, I think the management school at the time was it was not looking great using so much force on the protesters, so they decide, hey, what if we just leave? Let's see what happens. Well, we left the morning of the 8th of March, or mm-hmm. sorry, of June, and abandoned the precinct and took as much stuff out as we could, and uh, we let the protesters have it. Um, they immediately, pretty much immediately broke into it and occupied it. Not completely, but parts of it. So we were lucky that they didn't go in to the whole thing. They basically went to the front lobby area. Did they, like, not get in? I'm, I'm surprised they didn't go through everything. Uh, they were. They had some safety concerns for themselves, which were unfounded, but I'm, I'm glad they thought that was uh, that something bad would happen if they actually went to the precinct. Yeah. Um, and they let us in. They let us walk around the precinct. I think we grabbed some more stuff a couple of days later. Um, took a van out of there, a couple of vans full of stuff. We left some probably sensitive stuff in there that shouldn't have been left. But yeah, were you guys in a hurry when you were leaving? Is that yeah. why? Yeah. yeah, it was, it, it was a abandoned ship type thing. We grab what you can, put it in the back of a van, and then they brought it to the West Precinct for officers. You know, officers had their personal stuff in there. Yeah, and stuff was basically loaded in the back of a van and dropped off at the West Precinct, and then said, you know, go get your stuff. Yeah. You know, if you if you can find it, so it was a disheartening time for the department, and uh, you know it's one thing for having your precinct burned down like what happened in Minneapolis, but it's another thing to give it up to the people that you've been uh, that want to defund you, that have been yelling at you for weeks, that have been saying they want to kill you to let them have your building was mm-hmm. uh, probably disheartening to the department, um, and again. 
that's when the chop started. So they had the precinct, and then they decided somehow SDOT, Seattle Department of Transportation, let them have those metal or the giant concrete barricades, and they started blocking off streets, took over Cal Anderson yeah, Park. How did they get those? Uh, I think they, they requested them, and they, they got them. them. Yep, they did. And to this day, we don't have a... I've never seen after-action report on that, how it got... St- like, who... No one's taking credit for abandoning the precinct, whether the chief at the time, the mayor. It's still up in the air. And for I abandoning have... Abandoning... The East the, Precinct. Well, why, why... I mean, is it like they're afraid they're going to get in trouble? I mean, didn't everybody lose I it? think because it turned out bad. Nobody wants to get... Nobody wants to take credit or blame for that because it... The chop ended up, again, they blocked off the streets. They had their own armed security. It was getting dangerous there. They're passing out rifles and guns to untrained people to use them. And obviously, it ended up badly on the the first homicide that was there. Was that in chop? And that was, yeah, I would call it in the chop. Did you guys, did you, I mean, you, you know, report to shootings. Did you have to go there? I was not working that night. Uh, We had about nine or ten officers attempted to go into the chop. They wouldn't let them? They would not let them in. They actually chased them out, and then they chased them away from the scene. So that was another, yeah, not great moment in police history for SPD. Um, that person ended up dying on the first one. Uh, Did they let you know the ambulance in or anything? Uh, the well, here's the thing: Seattle Fire and ambulances and aid cars they will not go into a scene until it's secure. I.e., oh, weapons I are down. See. So. If we can't go in because people with the guns are kicking us out or just a large crowd is pushing us out with threats of violence, they're not going in. Right. So they were all upset about that. The fire wasn't coming in. Well, fire is not going in unless the scene's secure. And, and they, they don't have guns. They don't have yeah. you know, anything to defend themselves. So they need that scene secure before they'll come in. It happens all the time. Um, when we're at a shooting, you know, there's a large party or a club shooting even. They're going to wait to that crowd is back before they're going to come in and treat the guy mm-hmm. and then uh, a couple days later you know there's there were a couple other shootings that happened there at the chop as well people got hit but the last one was where the two kids got in the car got hit the 16 year old the 14 year old i don't I, I don't know details yeah that. that was that was the shooting that really shut the chop down so that's why yeah um, so specific, like what happened with that because i i have no idea there were some kids that were kind of joyriding around the area I think they got into a confrontation with someone else. I won't say too much because it's still an ongoing investigation. Yeah. There was a confrontation. They started coming towards, driving towards the uh, concrete walls that the CHOP security had set up, and one of the, we believe one of the persons that was behind that wall uh, fired multiple rounds at the car and ended up, I think, killing one and injuring the other. So that was kind of the last straw of... Uh, for you guys? I think for, like, I, I guess. I mean, I, again, I don't know who then made the call, like, we're going to take this back. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it was the chief. It could have been the mayor. I don't know. Both of them could have decided that. Um, and then, in, uh, so that was late June. And then I, we were there July 1st for actually take back the chop. Yeah, I was here in this building. Yeah. I was watching. I could see, I don't know if it's this way. I could see like a bunch of cop cars, and then I just look at my phone. I could see people just getting cleared out and arrested who weren't moving. Yeah, stuff like that. So, did you guys get that precinct? I mean, obviously you have it back, but is it like you have to like rebuild place part of it? What's that? Surprisingly, we went there on that July first. We cleared out. There's a bunch of tents in front. The park was. We had to clear out the park and some streets. It was. It actually went very smoothly. I mean, there was a few people that got arrested, but overall the operation went smoothly. There was very little use of force, if any, and it was. Fine. Um, That's good. And they had started to lose momentum as well. They didn't have enough security out there. They didn't have, you know, they were losing bodies. Um, but no, they had only gone really in the lobby area. So we went in. It's surprising to me. It really is. <laughs> I, I'm, I literally am shocked. I thought they went through everything and like every room was occupied. We, I, we were shocked too. They, uh, they had their own weird reasons for not doing that. Um, I think there were like booby traps in there or something like that. Pretty much, yeah. That's one way to say it. Because yes. I went there, like I think it was June twelfth. I went there, and that I went up to the precinct and it was like blocked off, like the entrance. Yeah. Like I was assuming that there would be people flooding in and out of it, but I was it was completely like there was no way. There was like like door, like something in front of the doors that was blocking it off, and I was kind of like, what? 
And, what, and one reason they did that, too, is there were certain protesters that wanted to use the East Precinct as a community center to, like, set up their home, home base on mm-hmm. and use it as an office building, basically. Well, there were other ones that were, like, they wanted to burn it down. So because they didn't know who's who, they weren't letting anybody in there because you never know. if you, And some, a couple people did try to burn it down during the chop. So they weren't letting anyone inside because they were under aware of what their intentions would be if they went inside to burn it down or cause damage or whatever. So when we took it back, uh, we basically went in there, and I think we were up and running within two days. Like, oh, wow. Back in lockers, it wasn't dirty, it wasn't smelly, it wasn't, yeah. There, was, there was a few areas that were damaged, but they were minor, and we cleaned it up, and yeah, we were back running up in two days. So it was, it was surprising. It was great, I think. Um, and then there was a brief... Uh, there were some moments there where we didn't have any protests for a few days. I think they were trying to regroup to figure out what was going on. Yeah. We were trying to figure out what was going on. So there was a little quiet period there. And then then it went back. And yeah. we had problems all out through July for a while there. I mean, there was a few incidents. And, I mean, through the summer, there's been, like, four or five other incidents with shootings and stuff like that throughout the country that protests have started up again. So, I mean, I'm not surprised things kind of went up and down and up and down with the protest. And when, because you brought up the chief, like, um, might have been the one to make the call to shut it down. She retired, right? Yes. So when was that? Yeah, she officially retired September 2nd. Oh, that, oh I thought it was I thought it was midsummer. Okay, so September 2nd, why did she do that? Is there a specific reason she said? Uh, I think it was a combination of things. I think she, you know, gave the very politically correct answers of just ready to move on, ready to retire. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that didn't... Um, it didn't help the protesters try to come to her house in Snohomish, you know, and do. They were using intimidation tactics to the city council, to officers, to her. For what reason? Uh, just to show that, hey, we know where you live and we're not afraid to come to your house. So, fortunately, they had, she was home at the time. She had some good neighbors that blocked off the streets, brought out some guns, defended their neighborhood from the protesters. Mm-hmm. And again, it's a, it's a, it is a strong-arm bullying tactic to show up at someone's house and say, hey, we're just here to talk to you. Well, no, you're not. There's yeah. plenty of opportunity to talk to you, whether you're... And it's happened to city council, too. There's some city council members. They didn't like how they voted to defund the police, showed up at their house in North Seattle, uh, showed up at the mayor's house uh, over there in Windermere. Um, so th- it's a tactic that can be effective, but it's also, I think it's almost an act of violence. Uh, when you have 400, 500 people show up at someone's house demanding to talk to them, demanding this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. And I don't think that's 100% the reason Carmen left. Uh, it was probably, it probably played into a little bit though. Um, and I don't, I also think she did not want to be around to oversee I think she saw the writing on the wall for the defunding of the police that was going to happen, mm-hmm. and she did not want to be uh, overseeing that process of dismantling the police department that she had worked at for you know 27, 28 years. Yeah, and I get that. So, right, I, I think there's other factors probably too that played in, and and maybe some of she was just tired because it is a hard. I mean, it's a very tough job because you can't please everyone on your department that you're trying to serve. So there's people that give you blowback from there. You're getting blowback from the mayor, the city council, community groups, right? All that stuff. So it, it is a very demanding job. And I, you know, I think she was ready to go. And I, I hope her well in her, uh, her new endeavors, whatever yeah. those are going to be. I think she's going to take a break for a while. And then I'm sure she'll find something else because definitely she's still pretty young and yeah. has a lot of good. She's been, she's taken the department through, uh, the Department of Justice changes, you know, the, the uh, settlement agreement, consent decree, whatever you call it. And she's also brought us through this, you know, through the, a lot of the tough protest times, too. So she's got a lot of experience, and she'll probably, you know, work out great as a consultant or something somewhere else. Yeah, good for her. So when it comes to the the um, subject, then, I guess, because, you know, that's obviously something that apparently, you know, might have been a factor in her leaving, the whole defunding the police um, like what, wh- so that started obviously because of all the, you know, incidents, probably more about George Floyd and then throughout the summer. Um, what is, I'm, you know, I talked, my last guest was an attorney 
And, you know, he was explaining to me about essentially like what that means because I didn't really understand it. Um, like, you know, why would we take away money from the police? I mean, we've seen cities where that's not worked out too well. I mean, crime rates go up, you know, New York, Chicago, stuff like that. So, you know, he explained obviously giving back to the communities, but like specifically, like, what do you personally believe? Like, you know, I, I, good idea, bad idea. Why does it have to be the police we have to defund? Why is there defunding in general? You know, what is that going for? Like, because, I mean, talking to an attorney is good I mean, right. because he knows, you know, people through the communities and everything like that. But for you, I mean, you, you're on Seattle Police Department. So, like, for you as a police officer, you know, in one of the main cities that, you know, all these protests have happened, Chaz, Chop, et cetera, you know, what, what are you, what's your, you know, status on, on the whole defund the police movement? Uh... I think it is a, you know, number one, let's face it, 50% is just a random number they picked. Nobody, you know, there's no science behind it or whatever. There might be a dollar amount behind it they're looking to get from the police department. That 50%, when we have a $400 million budget, they might want $200 million of that of that money. Um, I think overall it's going to be a negative for the citizens of Seattle. I think right now the citizens of Seattle are used to when they call in for a crime that a police officer is going to show up no matter what happens. So um, what would happen is if we do lose officers and we've already losing officers, detectives are getting sent back to patrol and like Berg theft, a lot of the, a lot of the crimes that affect normal citizens day to day when your car gets broken into or stolen or your house gets burglarized or stuff gets stolen out of your yard, we've already cut those detectives uh, by over half. So you're not going to get the follow-up response that you yeah. used to get a year or two ago. And it's the same thing if you cut patrol. If you cut patrol down, we're already pretty short there. If you cut us another one or 200 officers, then... When you say cut, like, like officer-wise, you're, like, like, getting rid of officers, individual yes. officers. You're not getting rid of, like, just, like... So that's, that's where I kind of get mixed up sometimes, because when I hear that, I'm like, oh, you're taking money from, like, the department as a whole, but you're actually, like, firing people. That could happen. And here's the thing where the city council doesn't understand how this works. They, they do, but they're ignoring it. The city council will give the police the chief, chief of police a budget. If that budget is $400 million right now, they can say, okay, next year we're going to cut you to $300 million. Mm-hmm. But they're trying to make, like you say, they're making, trying to make speci- they cannot make specific cuts to units. They can't say, okay, SWAT's 20 guys, we want it to 10. Oh, we want the NAV team gone. Oh, we want... Now, they can make suggestions on that, but ultimately when they give the chief... X amount of dollars, the chief could decide how many officers that buys gets me mm-hmm. and how many, what, what units I want to have. Maybe I want to have a bigger SWAT team. Maybe I want to have uh, more Berg theft detectives. That's up to the chief. Um, when it comes to what policing is going to look like after these cuts are made, we, nobody knows. But I think part of it is, is if they are made, we need to educate the public on what, what 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 can you expect now if there's used to be 1,400 officers in Seattle, now there's 800? You know, we're not going to be able to come out to certain calls. We're not going to be able to respond in a very expedient manner to most calls. So you're going to have to decide if you want to just do it over the phone, if you want to do it online, might be better. Um, and I think people are annoyed with that because we've had, since 911 was, you know, started what in the late 60s early 70s mm-hmm. uh, people have expected when they call that 911 call the police are going to be there in a reasonable amount of time right. to of course sometimes people just want to talk sometimes there is a crime that happens sometimes they're worried a crime is going to happen and sometimes it's an emergency where there's a crime in progress so yeah that's a mentality we've had now for over 50 years i call 911 someone shows up at my house with a you know police with a gun now they're saying, okay, let's cut the police. If you call 911, there's a lot of calls. You don't need a gun guy there. So let's have a person who's unarmed show up there. And so that's kind of where the defund the police, they're not going to really cut the budget, right? Government never gets smaller, right? That money that they're cutting from the police is going to go to the new civilian outreach group, whatever they call it. Um, and those are going to be the people that respond to the non emergency calls right yeah I it just there's just a lot going into like I mean like I said other cities you know you're cutting them it's it's taking you know violence is just increasing like uh, incredibly um, and it's like I kind of like it for for my for my last guest it was he was talking a lot about you know giving back to the communities you know 
um, you know, allowing, you know, cycles to stop, um, you know, gang violence to stop, you know, et cetera, stuff like that. Um, and do you think that that's going to be something that could potentially happen by taking the money from the police departments, like putting it back into communities that need it? Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we will see that. I mean, we there has been community investment in Seattle in uh, community in, you know, Rainier Valley, Capitol Hill, Yesler Terrace, uh, along Aurora in the North End, too, for years, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, I'm not sure how effective or efficient it's been. I mean, I was involved in uh, a late-night basketball program that was supposed to help out a lot. I think it did did, did some good. Um, I think I think if they reinvest the money correctly, it could be a, a good deal. Um, but I think you still need some police function there for, uh, in particular, the violent crimes, uh, domestic violence, mandatory arrests like that. Uh, we have to sit down and have that conversation about how we're going to handle that now with less cops. We also, a lot of cops are leaving, right? The younger guys are worried about getting laid off, so they're getting new jobs other places. And some of the older guys that don't want to go back to patrol or don't want to get their jobs changed are retiring. So, so you guys I, are losing cops either way. Either way, from, from, the, from the older guys who are retiring maybe a year early or too, or too early to the younger guys who are like, well, I've only got two years on. I'm probably going to get cut if they cut three, right. 400 guys. So they're already finding jobs. King County, Everett, Eastern Washington, out of state, um, that. So hopefully the amount of layoffs will be minimized by the amount of guys that are finding jobs elsewhere which, or retiring. Which would be which would be great because I I don't want to see any newer guys get laid off. A lot of these guys of are young not. guys with families and they got kids and you know right. you're 26, your wife and you got a two year old and it's you know, and so it's it's tough and it's hard to see my friends that are retiring a year or two early to leave that I've known forever for 20 25 years and it's also hard to see the newer guys that I know that are like I got to go find another job because it's too unstable here for me. I don't know if I'm going to be around in and literally this will all happen the next year. And I don't know if I will be around this time next year. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, it's been a wild year. No one would ever expect, you know, this kind of conversation to be happening back in what, like even up, like, to, up to like mid-May before everything started happening. Yeah, we were the considered, because of the consent decree we'd gone to, all the training we'd had with the crisis intervention teams, training to help out with mentally ill people, all the de-escalation training we had, and all the other training we had on firearms and stuff to comply with the DOJ consent decree, um, we were considered the model department in the country. Mm. And I don't think that just changed overnight because of what happened in Minneapolis. I don't think that changed because of we had to use force on some protesters that were doing major property damage and looting and were trying to injure cops with Molotov cocktails. I think we are still that well-trained, good department, other departments, love to hire young guys away because they know about de-escalation training, leads training, listen and explain with equity and dignity and uh, the, de uh, the CIT stuff. So we are very attractive to hire our young guys and gals to other departments because they have this training and they've already been using it for a year or two on the streets. And if you work downtown or in these precincts, you're using that de-escalation training, that CIT training every day because you're dealing with mentally ill people two, three, four, five times a day. Right. Um, and so I think the, the reason that we went from a good department, according to the city, to a whatever, out of control, use of force, you know, using too much force department is more because people have political agendas versus anything really changed within the department. Right. And, and the pro you said there's a protest tonight with 200, 300 people? Uh, a couple hundred people, yeah. And that is, is that, so is that specifically like they're going out there to defund the police? I mean, what, what specifically are they asking for in their protests? That is a good question. Uh, it varies from night to night. They have a very uh, wide agenda from defund the police to the uh, protesting uh, police brutality to protesting, I think, ICE or something, you know, Immigration and Customs tonight, to protesting uh, uh, the, the election coming up, or just marching about the election. So they have, they, it's a very, it, it seems to be a kind of a mishmash every night of what they're gonna do. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the good thing is it hasn't grown in size much. I mean, they're staying, we're, we're, they're, they seem to be staying at one to 200 people on most nights. So we're able to handle it in general. And tonight uh, we have guys out there that are making sure city stays safe and uh, windows stay uh, unbroken. So, yeah. And do they, so are they trying to get into, I mean, specific protests, um, like other precincts? Like, have, have it just been marching around the city, maybe, you know, some property damage? But have there been any other instances, not quite like Chaz or Chop or whatever it's called, but, you know, I mean, there's obviously a bunch of other precincts. Have, have they attempted to burn those down, get in them? Yes. The, the West Precinct is now walled off, has, you know, giant concrete, concrete blocks in front of it. That was a, a target of their attention for a while. They've kind of gone away from that. Headquarters, same thing, uh, attempted to do some stuff there, too. It seems to be the East Precinct seems to be their favorite, though. So they, they always go march back there. It's close to Cal Anderson Park where they kind of group up a lot of times. So I think it's more of a mm-hmm. – and it's in their, quote, their area, right? It's Capitol Hill, right? It's yeah. more the the protester zone. So, um, yeah, that seems to be their favorite target. But they have tried at other places. Is well. it more trying to – break in or burn it down or what? Uh, more burn it down, yeah. How would they do that? What, they got cocktails? Uh, yeah, Molotov cocktails. They've shot giant fireworks that punched a hole in the wall one time. This is back in the summer. Um, but yeah, in general, it's been attempting to burn it down. In general, with Molotov cocktails or other flammable devices that they've put against boards or the building or whatever, so... Um, uh, I think, um, yeah, we'll see what happens here in the next month or so. And has this year probably been the most hectic year for you guys? I mean, obviously with the whole deep on the police thing, but crime-wise, let's just like, if we're going to focus on like crime-wise, like has there been more, you said shootings have gone, you know, way up through the summer, um, but like crime-wise, has this year been, you know, more than it ever has been before in your entire career? We're not quite up to the early 90s when I first got here, but yes, the homicides have gone up significantly. Um, I don't know what the current number is, but you know, we were, I think, around 30, 20 to 30 for several years, and now it's in the 40s. So you know, that's you know, for Seattle, that's a decent rise. Yeah, um, I, I'm sure. Yeah, the shots fired, like I say, have gone up, which is, means more shootings, more violent crime, uh, property crimes are just. Um, I think a lot of them, I know the stats might say one thing, but I, I know it's out of control with property crime. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that's, and it's frustrating because, you know, the property crime affects the normal people more than anybody else, whether right. it's the burglaries of businesses, the burglaries of houses, auto thefts, uh, identity theft, uh, you know, fraud, that kind of stuff too. So, yeah. And uh, this is, I guess, since I was just on the subject this year and violence, I remember seeing, uh, I don't know, was it this summer or not, Alki Beach, I don't know if there was like a serial killer there. Is that, was that something that people found like bodies in the suitcases oh, yes. under the, every, was that something that you guys got, you know, locked down on? You find out what happened there? We did. Yep. Yeah. If, if anyone wants to know about the Alki thing, King County, uh, or the Seattle Police Homicide Unit did end up charging a guy with those murders. How many were there? Uh, there was two that we know of for sure. Mm-hmm. I have not heard anything further than the investigation, but those apparently... Are, they were only in the Alka area, though? They were. He was actually... I think they were actually murdered uh, in outside the city. Hmm. And um, they were... And I'm not sure either if they were dumped there at Alki and they floated, or if they were dumped in Duwamish and they floated to Alki. I'm not. I, have, I did not talk to the detective on that, but... Uh, yeah, that was apparently a landlord-tenant dispute that went oh, sideways. Wow. Yeah, real sideways. Yeah, so, um, the, but that was that was a good job by the homicide detectives in Seattle, and they worked also with their King County partners because it was kind of both jurisdictions. And yeah, ended up getting arrested on that. And yeah, it was it was one of the more gruesome um, homicides that I've been to. Or oh, you were there? Of, I wasn't actually there, but the more I've, I've heard about or seen right. as far as the amount of damage done to the bodies and, mm-hmm. you know, obviously 
chopped up on suitcases. Yeah. Is, that's a rare. That's, you don't see that yeah, very no, often. I, guess. I mean, Seattle's pretty known for some messed up killers in the right. past. But <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't imagine like having to work on that. I guess some of the guys have, are kind of might be used to things like that, but... Is that something? So when it comes, to, I mean, you, your your job is more like shootings, you know, gang stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What we went over, but do you have you ever reported to something like similar like that? Like, would you have to go to that if you got called to that? Uh, in general, our homicide unit's on call, so they'll take most of it. Sometimes, though, if we're working nights, we'll probably get to the scene first because we're just the on call night detectives. Yeah. So gang, it will get there to the homicide first before the homicide detectives do because they're responding from home a lot of times. And then you know, we'll just make sure the scene's secure and make sure witnesses are you know around still to take statements, that kind of thing, and then talk, kind of brief the detectives when they show up to take over the scene. Um, and then w- w- every now and then we'll get a homicide too because sometimes people get shot and they don't die for four or five days. Well, you yeah. know, if they're not dead, the homicide's not taking it. So we're going to you know, do our investigation for four or five days or maybe even a week before the guy dies. Yeah. And then maybe have leads and, and suspects and that, and the homicide will, you know, just say, oh, why don't you just keep the case since you've done this work on it. And so that happens, you know, maybe once a year, once every two years um, where we do that. But, yeah, the gang unit's a great spot to, or the, sorry, gun violence reduction unit now is a great place to work, and you just you get a lot of experience there. It's, uh, again, very uh, satisfying work, and I think... It's, uh, like I said, that's why I've been there for basically 21 years of yeah. my career because it's it's fun work, and you still get to go out and, and do some police work at, and at the same time do some investigations work, work on special projects, work with the feds, and, yeah. So and with, um, do you work a lot with the DEA? Because I would imagine if you find a lot of, I mean, especially with the homeless, um, would you find a lot of drugs and, you know, and shooting cases and stabbing cases? You know, we, we do find that. We don't find as much as we used to. And uh, gang members have changed a little bit. They still deal drugs. Um, they will deal marijuana and also a lot of uh, credit card fraud. Really? Yeah, they'll do a lot of paper, I call it whatever, paper fraud, card, paper card fraud. How, how, specifically, how, how does that work? They'll get them. Sometimes they'll get numbers off the dark web. You know, you can buy buy stuff off the dark web and try to use it. You can, a lot of car prowls, burglaries too, um, where they will just go in and do some quick hits, maybe get one or two hits off a card. You know, try to wash it by buying gift cards, that kind of thing. But, um, and it's a less dangerous crime, right? Because... Uh, you're not worried about getting robbed for your drugs. You're not worried about getting mm-hmm. ripped off for your money. You've got someone's credit card that you don't know or your their debit card. You're just going to use it real quick and toss it and, and then try to sell that item for uh, for cash. And so, yeah, so we saw a lot of gangsters going in, more into burglaries, more into uh, shoplifting, re- organized retail theft, where they're just, you know, shoplifting on a daily basis at different stores around the Northwest. Or, you know, where they take stuff, try to return it for money, or they'll take it and just sell it online. So, but drugs are still part of the thing. We still have gangsters that are out there selling mar- marijuana from the state. Uh, heroin's big. Heroin know. is huge here. That's what, I, that's what yes. I was asking more about is heroin. Is fentanyl huge here? Fentanyl's huge too. Yep, we're seeing more and more of that coming in. It's being manufactured. Uh, a lot of it in China, but it's also but it's being actually pressed into the pills a lot in Mexico. And I know all most of it comes from the southern border. Yeah, eventually the, you know, that's how it's getting fentanyl. in here. And the the bad part about it is fentanyl is so bad, it's so deadly. You know, just a few grains can kill you. Mm-hmm. So when you're putting in a pill, you know, was it three grains? Did I put in five grains? What, you know, what was my mix on that? Oh, never. Whatever. Boom. So that's why you'll see some overdoses on that. It's from bad mix of pills, or maybe even it's mixed into uh, some of the, the the regular heroin as well, where, yeah, someone gets like a hot shot, and yeah, that's it, that's how people die. yeah. Yep. No, there's a lot of overdose. I mean, they have the, what are they, the little centers where you can shoot up for, without getting in trouble? I don't know what They're supposed called. to make those, I think those have been put on hold, I don't know if because of COVID or because they couldn't find a locate, you know, I'm not sure what. They're supposed to have those up, I think, this year, but they haven't got up yet. So maybe next year they'll have them up. But that is, it's going to happen. It's its still in the works. Will that help at all with the SPD? Because I, I was, 
you know, when I think about it, it's, you know, my first thought is, like, why would they let people do drugs for free? I mean, or we, I mean not necessarily for free, but, like, without, you know, really getting them in trouble. And then I, when you think about it, maybe it's going to be, you know, you know, less of a situation where someone would overdose, maybe less, you know, violence about someone taking drugs on the street, something like that. I don't know. I mean, is it going to help? I mean, what, what's, what's a benefit of having those centers? Well, that's what they say. They would say those things like, yep, it's a safer place. They can medical, there's a medical someone on board in case you overdose, right? Um, I don't know. They must make them sign liability paper because, yeah, I mean, if you're going to let someone shoot up in your office or whatever it's going to be called, center, and they die, I mean, who's responsible for that then, right? I, I, so ultimately what it will come down to is eventually you won't be able to bring your own heroin in they're going to give you heroin to shoot up at their center. Mm. And that's how it's going to have to happen, to make it as safe as possible. Where they know it's not fentanyl-laced, they know it's whatever percent, tested in a lab, all that stuff. I know that's. I know they say that's not the plan, but that's what's going to happen. That if you open up crazy. these, Yeah, if you open up these shooting galleries, eventually there's going to be, there will be government handed out heroin, and all wow. it's going to take is a couple people to die in these centers from fentanyl or bad heroin or whatever it is, and they'll say, well, look, it's even too dangerous for them to shoot up here. We, we should give them safe heroin to shoot up. Um, and it's going on in B, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. People can go up there and, and check out that part of town. I've, I haven't been up there. I've heard not great things about that area. Um, and Heroin-wise? Or- Heroin-wise. They have, they, have shooting, they have safe injection sites, as they call them. Oh, I see. Um, so, uh, and I think, and they're more... They've been going on longer. They're more advanced than ours. And I think we are studying that to bring some of that down here, as far as I know. So, again, it's an experiment. Nobody knows truly what's going to happen, if it's going to attract more crime to the area, if it's going to attract more homeless to the area, if it's going to attract more you know, addicts. I'm, I'm assuming more addicts will come to the safe injection site area to live, tent up, RV up, whatever. But we'll see. They haven't done it yet, and we'll, we'll see if it happens in the next year or so here. And you brought up COVID, like maybe being the factor in why it's not happening this year. For COVID-wise, how does that affect you? Do you have to get tested like every day or so? I've been tested a couple times. Uh, gone down to get my COVID test, and I have been negative. Um, we no, there's no mandatory requirement. For a while, we did have people taking your temperature at the door mm-hmm. for the first two or three months, and just making sure you know. We follow just basic safety protocols that we tell anyone to do. Like if you feel sick, stay home, wear a mask, social distance. We have a lot of, we're doing work from home sometimes now too. So sometimes two or three guys in the squad will work from home. So there's just less people in the office, right? right? So if we had not, you know, if we normally have eight in the office, we'll cut it to five or four or whatever. So, um, so there's a lot of that going on. And does that I've, affect the way that you guys? you know, arrest people and whatnot. I mean, it's yeah, unfortunately different. when it comes to arresting people, yeah, I mean, you're, yeah, you're going to have to go hands on and get in their face and yeah, you're gonna be close. So it's, yeah, uh, obviously. yeah, it's, uh, so that part, um, we just try to mask up and stay safe there. Um, uh, as best we can. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, I just didn't know if it was how different it would be for you guys. I mean, I guess I, I actually thought you guys would be tested every day cause you're, you're out there arresting a bunch of people on the streets you know, yeah. you're bound to possibly get it, something like that. I mean, we got, we went. You know, I I worked the protest for 30 days. I, you know, never got it. That's why I got tested because I was out yeah. there for a month doing that straight. Some guys have been out there for two, three months now doing it straight. So, uh, but yeah, never really heard about any outbreaks from that. Uh, the department has really low numbers as far as people that have even tested positive. It's I think it's in single digits since mm-hmm. the start of it, so it's been very low. And then, yeah, I think we've just been either lucky or fortunate to, yeah, not have a whole, an outbreak where we had to lose a precinct or a squad or a, you know, a whole group of detectives, so it's been nice. That is good, that yeah. is good. Okay, last, I guess, question. Um, let's see, like, fun question. What's, like, the craziest, like, you've, you know, you've busted a lot of people, like, craziest amount of, would you find like a rocket launcher one time? Did you find like some crazy amount of drugs one time? What's that? Hmm, that is interesting. Um, I mean, you've been on the you know the force for almost what like thirty years almost. Almost third twenty eight years now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, you know, I just I was just thinking about that. I was like, what should I ask at the end of this? And I don't know. I mean, almost thirty years. I would just any 
craziest things you've found? Yeah. Well, I think sometimes I've been shocked at the amount of, with the ATF, the amount of guns we found at guys' houses. You know, I mean, there's a couple places where the guy had hundreds of guns. Wow. And he was selling them, possessing them. I mean, I think one of the craziest arrests I went on was on an ATF case where we were doing a search warrant on a house. And, and I was the lead guy going in, and a giant Rottweiler came charging at me. Oh, whoa. Yeah. And then the dog got shot right behind me by one of my partners. And then the owner came to the door with a gun. And, he, you know, I mean, he almost got shot, and he was the guy we were looking for. And it was just all this happened in like a second, and like my mind was just, you know, That's crazy. it took me like a couple hours to settle down from that because I thought the dog was going to bite me when he charged at me. Then I hear a shot behind me. Then this guy has a gun, and it's just like everything, yeah. like you nightmare so scenario. Yeah, do that. That'd be a great academy scenario for somebody to deal with that. So, that's, that was one of my more crazy mm-hmm. incidents that happened. And, um, but yeah, I think, you know, the, uh, I'm just trying to think recently. I just think a lot of it is just, I just get shocked about how many kids have guns, you know, these days. Even being on the force as long as I have, it seems to be more prevalent now. The just amount of gang wise? Gang wise, even normal, you know, non gangster wise, just associates, friends, Acquaintances. I mean, everyone's gunned up. As in, uh, like, do you, when you say, like, you know, I guess non-gang-wise, you just, you know, somebody's, you know, doing something like you, you arrest them, and it turns out they have a gun on them. Yeah, do, do you that like, too. Yeah, that and and I was more asking, like, do you find them sometimes on, you know, kids that you're not actually looking for, like you just stumble upon them, messing around or doing something like that, like when you when you say you're shocked about all like the you know quote like kids having guns, um, is it more you're shocked more at, you know, non-gang members having guns? Um, no, because I, you're right. I have not seen a ton of non-gang members with guns or non-criminals with guns. But in the criminal world, it seems to be more prevalent now than ever. And they're getting, you know, I remember back in the 90s, we were worried they were all getting rifles and assault rifles and all this stuff, right? And that never, it materialized. There's, they're still out there. We'll see 7.62s and 223 rounds a lot. But they're getting better handguns. It seemed like back when I was in the early 90s or mid-90s, they were shooting off little, like, we were worried about Lorsons and Jennings and kind of crappy guns. And now we are, I mean, it, it's, it's a Glock. It's a SIG. It's some kind of knockoff that's a decent version of that now. So we're seeing, I think, a better handgun quality than we did 20 years ago for sure. Right. And that's leading to more, you know, more rounds being fired because the guns aren't jamming as much. They've got extended clips and... Um, yeah, and it's probably leading to more people getting hit. And we're, like I say, I've been to shootings where 50, 60 rounds are fired and there's, we can't find a victim. So we're getting lucky sometimes when no one gets hit. But yeah, 50, 60 rounds is yeah, a lot. It's a lot, yeah. It's, and so I think that's probably, yeah. You know, specific arrests, yeah, there's been some weird ones over the years. And then, but just in general right now, just the amount of firearms, firearms that are out there. And they're just young kids, and they seem to be more and more willing to use them day to day. And that's what I think I'm seeing. We're seeing more of now as these of uh, those type of incidents. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can only hope and pray that things like that I mean go down. That this year gets better. Um, you know, I'm hoping it does for for everybody. But you know, like obviously in this case for SPD for you. Um, but uh, we re- I really appreciate you coming on. I was I was really looking forward to this because I mean honestly this year with like politics and everything it's like a lot of it is focused around the police. Um, so I am um, you know I was I was looking forward to have you on and I really uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Well there we go. There we go. But I really appreciate you coming on. So um, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it. And like I say, this year is not over yet. We're gonna have a lot uh, to go. Over probably November, because, again, we're gearing up for uh, probably big civil unrest uh, during yes, the election before was, and yes, after. And so, that. yeah, we've already, we're, I know the command staff's making plans for that already. And, uh, yeah, the, the, the never-ending year of 2020 still has yeah, a couple not, more fun months yeah. ahead of us, apparently. So there you go. There we go. I will 
good luck in the next few months. I think that there's definitely going to be luck needed in November. <laughs> you reminded me, but I just forgot about that. Yeah. That'll be wild. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. All right. You're welcome. Thank you.